When you say you a touch nose it. toucher, do you touch other... He touches other... his nose. I touch my own nose. That's how he gets sick all the time, dude. Yep. His nose, his eyes. My nose, my Oh, because you put germs into your nose? Mm-hmm. Mmm. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. And every week, Pastor Matt Brown is here to give us real answers to your tough questions from the Bible. That's right. I am your uh, friend, Justin Pardee. That right there is Stephanie Keene. That's right. And I am the PMB. Hanging out on the couch of wisdom is Mm. Pastor Matt Brown. You feeling good today? Yeah, the couch feels wise. Oh, yeah, the couch looks wise. Mm-hmm. Good choice. That Touch reminds da- me Touchdown of... Touchdown Jesus approves. The, yeah. the rabbit is wise is a thing my... The rabbit my... is good. The rabbit is wise. Oh, yeah. See? From Pastor <laughs> Matt. Pastor Matt, do you know what movie that's from? Oh, God. She actually just said it. I it's did. Twister. Cow. Another cow. Some great lines. Some real great lines. I think I had lines. that me- movie like memorized as a kid. I watched it so much. Me too. That's what movie? so weird. Twister. Twister. It's the one about her- tornadoes. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't watched it for at least like 15, 20 years. It's probably terrible. But yeah. I loved it. Hmm. There's a cow that flies around a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. And I think some guy drives an awesome truck through a farm. It was sure pretty cool. Does. Yeah, I saw that movie. I liked it. <laughs> exactly. I just didn't memorize it. I memorized the Bible. Oh, good oh. for you. You know what? That's, a, that's very noble of you. Hey, before we jump into the show uh, and start tackling some questions, we want to say thanks to those of you guys who are supporting the show by leaving awesome reviews, either in the iTunes podcast directory and or uh, on our Facebook page. So we have two awesome reviews that I want to share with you guys from this week. The first one comes from Kristen Farnsworth, and she says, Hey, guys, love the debrief from way up in Napomo, California. So excited. My parents picked up my husband and I, two debrief t-shirts. We love what you're doing, and I'm addicted. Yes, I love Napomo. You you know where Napomo yeah, is? That? Oh, man. I, I, was, I was about ready to say a joke that says, I looked it up on a map, and it doesn't exist. Yeah, no, Napomo's a real place. <laughs> oh, sounds interesting. <laughs> and uh, we have one more from Fitness Lauer. This came in on our iTunes store. says, I love listening and letting my kids listen and learn as we drive around town. The Bible knowledge keeps us learning and growing and j- with the jabs and jokes, keeping us entertained. I have to be careful where I listen to the debrief so I don't start laughing out loud in the gym or in line at the grocery store. Not bad. Listening with her kids. I know. Hope Good you guys have been having some really meaningful conversations about mm-hmm. circumcision and things yes. like that based on the last... Yeah. Johnny, things are going to change. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's right. Well, hey, before we jump into your questions, just want to give you guys a heads up. We are getting ready to run some awesome fall uh, contests here on The Debrief, and they're going to involve you guys in your Debrief t-shirts. So if you do not have one of those and you want to get in on some of this awesomeness, we're going to announce our first competition uh, next week on the podcast. If you want to get ready for that... Make sure to pick up one of those t-shirts when you're on campus at Sandals Church this weekend. Or if you can't get to Sandals Church, do what uh, Kristen Farmsworth did and send your parents to buy one for you. Yeah, or ask Kristen's parents. Maybe they'd be down to do it too. Oh, that's right. Look them up on Facebook. Well, hey, we're going to get into some questions today from Acts chapter 16. But before we do that, we've got some follow-up questions from the show uh, uh, the last couple of weeks. The first one came from Alyssa on Facebook. Yeah, and Alyssa asks, how do you deal with conflict with someone who doesn't care if it's dealt with or not? I'd also like to hear a good answer about yeah. this for me and Stephanie. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you can only repair a relationship when two parties are interested in repairing. And so that that's just the key. You know, conflict is something that can only be restored when both parties are interested. You know, now usually in a normal, semi-healthy relationship, if one person is prompted to fall on the sword and say, you know what, I blew it, I'm sorry, 
you know, be quick, be, be the person that's quick to say, I'm sorry, and, and be quick to try to restore the relationship. But the reality is, if someone is not interested in restoring the relationship, you're going to have to deal with it as it is. Mm-hmm. And so what I would do is go before God, just plead your case to God and say, God, I want to restore this relationship. I want, I want this to be right. I don't want sin to be in my heart, but I am unable at this time, you know, to, to deal with this relationship. Yeah. And so, um, in the future, just just have a humble attitude and ask God if there's an opportunity to keep your heart open and your your you know your attitude humble, so that if and when by some chance or miracle that this person has a change of heart, you can restore that relationship. But you can't you can't fix the brokenness in others. You can only f- fix the brokenness that you've participated in, and so mm-hmm. you can only do your part. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this question comes from Tina, who says. Uh, and this is really awesome. Obviously, she was listening and thinking hard during your sermon this last weekend. How do you tell the difference between stress and pressure that God uses to change direction in your life from just normal stress that incurs while you're in the place God wants you? Yeah, that's a great question. So stress is stress is uh, a difficult thing, and it's a beautiful thing. So for example, when I was in the Army, uh, you had to go through boot camp, and it was like, a, I think it, my boot camp was 12 weeks, and it was very, very stressful. Mm. And so... Um, at first, it felt debilitating, and then I realized that the Army was trying to equip me to handle things and handle situations, and so they were intentionally putting pressure on me to prepare me for greater things. And so I think God allows us to go through stress because He's preparing us to participate in His Army so that we can handle greater, greater things. And so part of it's training, part of it's just the world that we live in. We live in a stressful world. We live in a world where we travel too much, we work too much, we we don't stop, we don't rest. I mean, that's just the reality. So. Here's what I would say is I think stress is always God trying to get our attention, always. Mm. So sometimes it's some things that, you know, you can't change and you got to deal with it. It may mean you need to change jobs, you need to change your friendships, you may need to change your life in some way. But what I think is, is it's God reminding you. Just think of, uh, I was talking with my wife about this this week, just think of it literally as God putting his hand on your chest, because you can actually feel pressure sometimes on your chest, and God saying, hey, this is too big for you, let me handle this. That's awesome. You know, and so... Um, you know, Psalms 4610, you know, be still and know that I am God. God talks about resting in his arms as a nursing baby rests in, in its mother's arms. It doesn't think about anything. It doesn't long for anything. It's completely held. It's completely at peace. And that's what God wants us to be. When we experience stress, it's usually because we're tackling something that is too big for us. We have put ourselves in the seat of God and we are trying to handle things, control things, uh, literally, I mean, worry is trying to change the world through mental power. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. You do not have the mental power to do that. And so you've got to give to God what's God's. He can handle it. You know, the Bible says, cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. So throw it. Think about throwing it on God and say, okay, God, that doesn't mean you don't have to work. You don't have to try. You don't have to do your best. But once you get it, man, um, you know, I think about when I was in the military, um, they would ask you to do things in an amount of time that you could never accomplish the task. It was intentionally done to make you fail, and mm-hmm. people would just flip out. And I learned to just laugh at it and be like, okay, these guys are messing with us. And it's not that God that's messing with mm-hmm. you, but he's putting these things in your lives so that you can realize, I can't do this in the time allotted. I can't make this happen. So in stress, instead of stressing out, give it to God. Say, God, you know, here, my marriage is yours. My, my finances are yours. My kids are yours. This situation is yours. I'm going to do the very best I can, but at the end of the day, you're God. I'm not, and I'm going to trust you. And so... um I think her question, though, was how do we discern between stress outside of God and stress that's from God? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, what, again, why you need community. You need people to speak in your lives. So the Apostle Paul um, and Silas here 
know that this is the Holy Spirit, they know this is the Spirit of Jesus, and they determine that this is the will of God. And so they're in tune with what God is saying. And so that's what I would say is every single day, try to live your life so that you're listening to God through his word, uh, through his people, and through your experiences. God speaks. And I think many of us don't listen to God. Um, you know, even like if you have a weird dream, like what, what was that about? How do, I, how do I interpret that in my life? Because God speaks through dreams, visions. God speaks through, you know, um, subtly through people and situations and circumstances. I think God is speaking to us all day long and nudging us. And the stress oftentimes is the resistance to that. And so that's why God blocked him from going to Asia and then blocked him from going up to the Black Sea, uh, like towards Russia. So, mm-hmm. so I think that idea of accepting all stress as being God trying to get your attention can be really, really powerful. Um, there's all kinds of different ways that could occur, whether it's somebody at work dealing with uh, challenging projects, tasks, or even relationships, or you know, some student with new material or homework or a project that's hard for them, or you know, even parents and kids and, and those relationships. If I were to accept that really anytime I'm feeling stressed out, that it's God trying to get my attention, what would you say? Like, do I just pause briefly and pray in that moment? What's the yeah, best response in that situation? Yeah, I think exactly. Psalm 46, 10, stop, slow down, and rest. And you've got to you've got to interject times to spend alone where you're doing nothing and you're focused on God. That's what, that's the rule of the Sabbath. You've got to make sure you do that because if you don't, life catches up. We were not made to go, 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 go. We have to stop. Sooner or later, if we don't stop, we don't rest, God will actually stop us through our physical bodies. We get sick, you know, our bodies don't work. It, you need to slow yourself down or your body will slow yourself down. So I would just say stop, take a deep breath, literally breathe in, and then breathe out and say, God, you're in control. I'm going to hand this to you. Um, this week in church, I don't think I said it at every service, but one of my favorite verses is Colossians 3.15. This says, let the peace that comes from Christ control your thoughts. So like when I go to yoga, I don't do the whole namaste thing. I don't yeah. say all their Hindu prayers and chants. I do Colossians 3.15. Let the peace that comes from Christ control my thoughts. Um, and then if you summarize that verse really quickly, it's, and be grateful. So just let God control my thoughts and I'm going to be grateful for what I have. And so, so much of it's just learning to stop, pause, breathe, and pray. And, and, and the, the effects are profound. Even people who don't believe in God, scientists mm-hmm. measure this in people. It's profound. When we stop, we pause, and we think about God and we recognize that he's in control, this gives people great power. And so it's interesting that non-Christians recognize the strength of that. And oftentimes as Christians, we completely forget it. Mm-hmm. So stop, listen, and just say, okay, God, I'm feeling stressed right now. Why is that? Because I'm, I put myself in the seat of God. I'm trying to control this, understand this, manipulate this, move this, make all of these things happen. And the truth is we're not God and you can't control life. You can do your very best. You can work your very hardest, but things happen. So, yeah, I love the answer. I was caught off guard. I didn't think you were going to answer that way. And I think it's really cool. And if, if you're listening and dealing with some stress, man, I think you just got some really cool practical advice. Here's what I would say, man, let's just test that out together for a week. I think that'd be so cool. One week. And uh, anytime we're feeling stressed in any of these areas, just pause and, and follow that advice. And let us know how that goes for you over the course of a week. I'd be super curious uh, to hear about that. Um, write to us on our Facebook page. We'd love to know uh, if that's having an impact on you guys. Yeah, and just remember, God loves you, man. Yeah. And oftentimes, stress is a gift to make us aware and remind us we're not in control and we need God. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, hey, uh, speaking of our Facebook page and stuff like that, if you want to get your questions here uh, on the show, you can write to us on Facebook or you can go to sandalsearch.com slash debrief and uh, click the big red button to ask a question and we'll get your questions here on the show. Uh, Follow-up questions from any of our past episodes, Pastor Matt sermons, or just tough questions from the Bible. And uh, now we're going to jump into questions from Acts chapter 16. Should do. So we're going to start off with uh, verses one through five. It says that Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. So right off the bat, why does Paul make Timothy get circumcised after the council just decided that it wasn't a requirement? And I just have to ask, like, did they check this at the door? Like, why did... Why yeah, on yeah. your way into the synagogue, yeah. how, how are they going to know? Why is this well, an issue? Yeah, part, yeah. part of being a priest, uh, a Levite priest, was was checking people. You had to check them for diseases. You checked for circumcision. You checked for a lot of things. But more than that, so they're in Philippi. They're in a Greek city. So you would have gone to the gym. So a lot of people don't realize this, but you went to the gym naked. So everyone knew who was circumcised and who was not. So the ancient Greeks wrestled... You know, I see a little twinkle in your eye. Oh my God. Wrestled naked in the gym. That's that's how you worked out. That's how they did that, which is why so much of the Greek life was offensive to Jews. Mm -hmm. And so literally Jews were teased um, about being circumcised because it was seen as bizarre mutilation or odd. And so that's how they would have known. So what was the second part to your question? Well, the initial question was just, why does Paul make Timothy do this when he, they just, in the last chapter, Yeah, the whole last chapter was the council, the big decision. And I think Paul and Timothy are literally coming to deliver the message Mm -hmm. that you don't have to be circumcised. Yeah, absolutely. To be saved. You don't have to do that. So the gospel um, teaches us two things in Acts 15. Number one, if you're Greek, you don't have to become Jewish. But number two, what a lot of people don't talk about is if you're Jewish, you don't have to become Greek. And so that's the freedom of the gospel. And that's important um, for all of us in our cultures, you know? I mean, if you're Hispanic, Christ wants to, y- you to love him as a Hispanic Christian. Uh, if you're, uh, you know, a black person from Detroit, God wants you to love him as black culture is whatever that is in right. Detroit or wherever you are. And so, um, or like Stephanie, you know, her Croatian culture mixed with Lebanese, which is a little bizarre. Sure. Yeah. It mostly is just ethnic, not really cultural, yeah. but I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, right. <laughs> so whatever her... Her situation. culture is she's allowed to worship Jesus in that basic way. Basic white so, girl is mostly yeah. my identity. Okay, culture, basic white girl. Okay. So, so um, that's what's really important here. But what's amazing is you know, and we talked about it doesn't make any sense. And the reality is it, it does fall into a weird position. And so I think when I was preaching on that's why I think a lot of us get stressed out is because okay, God, you've asked me to do this, but now this is happening, and we get all caught up. And sometimes life doesn't make sense. Paul had a vision, and in the big picture, he thought it was best for the long run for. Uh, Timothy to be circumcised, even though he didn't have to. And Timothy could have said no, because right. he doesn't have to. There's no theological grounds for that. But Timothy considers Paul his father, and Paul, Paul considers Timothy his son. So Timothy's dad's probably dead, not deceased. We don't know that, but he's not in the picture. The Bible talks about his mother and her faith, and even his grandmother's faith. So there's a lineage of faithfulness here, but he's grown up in a Greek culture with a Greek dad, and Paul is saying, look, your mother's Jewish, and so most most in the history, uh, in most of the history for Judaism, if your mother was Jewish, you were considered Jewish. Now that's not always been the case. Sometimes it it was understood through the lineage of the father, but for most of the time, it was through the mother. And so, because his mother's Jewish, Paul is saying we need to raise you as a Jew because the lineage, his understanding was that it would have flowed to the mother. Mm-hmm. And so he has him circumcised as a Jew because in Paul's mind, he is a Jew, and so he needs to remain as that and be faithful to that. And it's going to cause less conflict as they evangelize not just Gentiles, 
but Jews. And it's just, it's so important here that we understand this, that sometimes we have to turn ourselves in a pretzel to reach people who are lost. So we, we have to experience the discomfort. We have to go through the difficulties and we have to make the change. I remember, you know, the church that I, I was at before um, I came to, um, to plant Sandals Church was a church down in Huntington Beach, an amazing location. And I'll never forget, right before I decided to leave that church and come here, there was this big meeting. And the reality was our church in Huntington Beach was a whole lot more like a church in Oklahoma than it was like a church in Orange County. And so mm-hmm. there was this discussion about changing things, changing the name, changing the way we did things. And I'll never forget this woman who'd been a Christian for probably over 40 years said, why do we need to change to reach them? Mm. And the answer is because that's what the gospel mandates, that we need to change because their salvation is at stake. And our heart needs to not be so wrapped up in our culture, but it needs to be wrapped up in the people who are lost and getting them saved for Christ. And so here is this great example of Paul saying, look, you don't have to do this, but I think you should do this because we want to reach these people. Here's what's amazing is Timothy does it. You know, we have all these Christians today that say, God would never ask me to, God would never want me to. And we, we put up all these roadblocks where God can't speak to who I date, God can't speak to my sexuality, God can't speak to my tithing. Like God, God would never ask me to give up 10% of my income. This guy doesn't have to be circumcised, but as a man, he is, and he submits himself to that. Why? Because he loves Jesus. And he's willing to do whatever Paul thinks he needs to do so that he can become a follower of Jesus. And what's amazing is Timothy becomes a major player in Scripture. There's two books of the Bible named after him, mm-hmm. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He becomes a traveling companion with Paul, and he becomes a major, major influence in the early church. And why? Because of his devotion to Jesus. I'm going to do whatever it takes to follow my God. I don't have to do this, but I'm going to do this. And that's what Paul says. He says, I've become all things to all people that I might win some to Christ. That's his strategy. What do I have to do to present the gospel in a context that is the least hostile to your culture, that is the least hostile to your understanding? There are some things that are hostile. Repent, you're a sinner, and there's only one way to be saved. That's rough for people. So I'm going to try to eliminate everything else so that I can get the gospel to you. And that's the way we need to think when we're trying to get our friends to come to church, you know, when we're trying to, you know, tell somebody about Jesus, our first thought needs to be is how do I tell them about Jesus and their situation? And what do I need to do to help present the gospel to them? And uh, that's just so important. And it's amazing. So Timothy does it. Yeah, and and Timothy's part in this whole thing is what's most interesting to me, because I think a lot of people, you know, at least that I hear in church, are, are really focused on what does the Bible want to say? Here's a question that I have for you, and hopefully this is not awkward for you to answer as like a pastor or somebody who's in, you know, spiritual authority over a lot of people. Um, but is there a lesson to be learned here from Timothy going above and beyond just the explicit teaching of the scripture to submit to a, a, a person's spiritual authority as they make a decision. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important. A, don't ever attend a church where you don't believe the leaders hear from God. Don't go there. Find another church right now. Get out of there. If you are in a church where you believe that your leadership hears from God, why wouldn't you submit to them? Hmm. And so that, that even on like yeah, small details, yeah, well, of your life? this is not a small detail. I mean, this is, you know, uh, this is, this is a major, major issue here. Um, I think that we need to trust that God speaks through our leaders. Mm-hmm. So we need to make sure that we have the right kind of leadership and we need to listen to them. And, and Timothy believes that Paul is wise. What's amazing is many Christians in that day didn't believe that Paul is wise. And he has to talk about, hey, I'm an apostle just like everybody else. Jesus appeared to me just like, you know, he was with them. And it's amazing 
that we assume that everybody followed Paul and everybody didn't follow Paul. A lot of times they had problems with him. Even Corinthians, the church in Corinth, had real problems with Paul's leadership. Timothy recognized the spiritual authority in Paul and trusted, okay, this guy walks with Jesus, knows Jesus, and so I'm going to submit to his authority. You got to be careful because some leaders will use that to manipulate and they become cultish in the way in which they leave. So find a leader that's very, very careful when and how and where they try to influence you or cause you to submit to things. But if you have a leader that's like that, when they do ask you and they do speak into your life, listen, mm-hmm. listen, you know, um, I don't believe that I'm, I'm the perfect leader or I'm God's gift to the church, all churches, but I do believe God has uniquely gifted me to speak wisdom into people's lives. And I can't tell you how many times I speak into people's lives and they don't do it. They, they just don't do it. And mm-hmm. I watch them crash. I watch them burn. I watch them just go down in flames. And it's just like, why do you call me your leader and not listen to what I say? Which is interesting because the same thing Jesus asked the 12 apostles. Yeah. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Because that's the root of our sin is our pride and our selfishness. I need to know. I need to have all the answers. And uh, so find a leader that you trust. Find a leader that's wise. And then listen to what they say. Mm-hmm. And, and again, a lot of leaders say, well, that's not in the Bible. I want you to notice here what Timothy's doing is not in the Bible. Paul is asking him to do something that he is not biblically mandated to do. But Paul feels like it's wise so that we can reach these people. I need you to go above and beyond, not for your sake, it says, but for deference to the Jews because of their spiritual weakness. I want you to do this, not because you have to, but because they need you to. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to do that. Pretty cool. Yeah, I'm just thinking about 13 years ago when you found out I was going to move to, I was getting ready to move to New York City and you called me in and told me not to move. And I was like angry at you and all those are, and frustrated and all those other things. But obviously I'm, I'm so glad that I didn't because, you know, my wife and children and this church and all this. Yeah, everything, you were going to chase a woman that's not even your wife. <laughs> well, right, exactly. <laughs> everything good in my life has come, you know, uh, from staying here and being a part of our church. So, yeah. um, well, I'm glad yeah, you listened and I'm glad you're here. There's good, there's good stuff in, in that, even on those. Right. So, and there's cool. no Bible verse that says don't move to New York. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So moving on, in verses 6 through 8, it says that next, Paul and Silas traveled to the areas of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then, coming to the borders of Mycenae, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So good job on all that pronunciation. Yeah, Phrygia really is brutal to yeah, say. That was, that was a good job. I you practiced it a yeah. million times this weekend. So Phrygia. Okay, so here's, here's a question. Phrygia. Why would the Holy Spirit um, not want them preaching in Asia? Because it seems to be blocking them. Yeah, absolutely. And so I would say this, it's not that he doesn't want them there. There's evidence that the gospel does eventually make its way up there. It's that he wants them in Macedonia. Okay. So God has a plan. So remember the proverb, many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. So it's not so much that God doesn't care about the people in Asia, it's that he knows that he is going to do a massive movement in Macedonia, and God's going to do a revival. And by the way, when you read through the New Testament, guess where the sweetest church comes from? Macedonia. It's the Mm. church of Philippi. Mm. They're the church that supports. They're the church that gives. They're the church that finances, you know, his second and third mission journeys. So so God knows that I'm going to do something special here, and I want you there. Because, you know, the reality is, you know, I think about Sandals Church. God gave me a vision, but the reality is it's taken people, and God has brought us people at every unique stage to help us build the buildings that we have, to have the influences that we have. And I couldn't have done it without those people. God knows that there's a woman named Lydia in in Macedonia, and she is going to dramatically change the financing 
of the church Mm -hmm. because she's very, very wealthy and very, very powerful. And so God's got to get him there. And uh, what's amazing is they have to go through some really cool cities. They have to they have to not preach the gospel in some really, really cool places. And I also think God is stretching Paul a little bit here because there's not a synagogue there. He's pushing Paul further and further outside of his comfort zone. Mm. There's such a small Greek population in this city that there's not even 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. So think about that. He's moving him further and further away from his comfort zone, which is what I think God wants to do for all of us so that we can continue to evangelize. Mm. Now, I have a question. How did they know that this is the Holy Spirit preventing them and not just challenges that they should have pushed through? Right. And, and Luke even says the Holy Spirit. And then in the, in the next the verse, he says, yeah, Spirit of Jesus. How, how did the early church understand even the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, first of all here, Luke's giving us a summary of what took place. So mm-hmm. I, what I'm thinking is that, that there's going to be some impressions. There, there could have been a voice. You know, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but here's what I can tell you is I know when the Holy Spirit's speaking to me, it it feels like an emotional, spiritual punch to Mm -hmm. your soul. I can feel it in the depths of who I am. And it's just like God says, no, don't do this, or God go there, or God speak to this person or talk to this person. And, you know, the last time I really felt like the Holy Spirit said, it was when we were in India and Mm -hmm. we were at Starbucks and God said, you need need to speak to this 13-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, you know, a couple of days later in her house with her parents. We we're having dinner till one o'clock in the morning talking about Jesus. God said, that's the one. And here's usually, it's God's telling you to do something you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing you know. So it's something you don't want to do, and it's something you know you should do. Th- right. Those are the two ways. So I know I should do this, but I don't want to do this. So Paul has planned out a route. We're going to we're going to take the easy route. We're going to go through these cities, and we're going to share the gospel. But God says, nope, you're going to come here. You're going to... Uh, abandon your plan and you're going to follow my plan. And so that's the two things. So it's not something I want to do and it's something I know I should do. Those are two things. And and by should, I mean based upon the Bible. Mm-hmm. This is something good, right, and true. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really interesting Think trying to imagine how that whole thing would have worked out logistically. So, all right, this is interesting. In verse eight, um, as Luke's writing, he says, but again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. Then we get into verses nine through 10. That night, Paul had a vision and a man from Macedonia in Northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once. Um, So Luke just switched all his pronouns here from they to we about the about the travelers. Is he with the band now? Yeah, so most scholars believe that this is when Luke picks up on the journey. And we don't know, know that exactly, but it seems to make sense linguistically. We know that Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and so he probably joined him here. Some people think he may have been, um, you know, from this area or region. Most likely, I think he was from Antioch, but, you know, no one knows for sure because he doesn't identify his hometown. But he does make some mentions of Philippi, where he talks about it as the first city or the most important city. And so that's why um, most scholars think that maybe Luke was from there or, or, or had something to do with there, you know, just because people have local pride in their city. Right. And Philippi is not the leading city of Macedonia, but he describes it as such, you know, like the most important or the most beautiful. Yeah. So there's some local pride there. So yeah, so Luke is a part of the journey and we have the fearsome foursome now. So we have Silas, <laughs> Timothy, Luke, and Paul, and they're traveling together. And I mean, think about it. These four guys are going to change the world. It's yeah. pretty incredible. Totally. So, 
I like that, the fearsome foursome. <laughs> so starting in verse 11, uh, he writes, We reached Philippi, a major city in the district of Macedonia, stayed there several days, and on the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with women who had been gathered there. One of them was Lydia. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. Uh, if you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. So I feel like a lot of people view Christianity and most world religions as being pretty oppressive to women. This verse seems like Paul's kind of going outside of what normal Jewish rabbis would do and going up and approaching a group of women, sharing the gospel with a woman. What, has something shifted here or what's happening here? Yeah. So Roman, Roman and Greek uh, culture gave new rights and new freedoms to women. So women would in the Roman world would have rights to divorce. They would have some new rights. They were still treated as second-class citizens, but they were gaining um, all kinds of influence within the culture. And so Lydia is certainly a great example of that, someone who's very wealthy, someone who's very powerful, probably runs her own business, mm -hmm. and is one of the wealthiest people in town. So what's interesting here, though, is so there's no Jewish synagogue in town in Philippi, so that means there's like hardly any Jewish presence whatsoever. So they're going to go out to the riverbed, and so this was the Jewish understanding of law, that if, if there wasn't a local gathering or synagogue, you would try to find a place in the open air. For what some reason, they would usually gather around a body of water. Maybe that was for ritual purification. Mm -hmm. We're not exactly you know sure why, but the kind of the washing before you, you read this, the Torah or whatever, and so they would gather. What's interesting is there's not even any men present. It's mm -hmm. all women. Right. So this may just be Lydia, who's a God-fearer, and she's making all of her employees come with her down to this riverbank to honor God. So here's where it would work a little differently than maybe your understanding, Stephanie, is a traveling rabbi mm -hmm. would go to this and speak because that's how he would earn his income. Mm -hmm. So he'd be an itinerant preacher, a traveling prophet, and so they would go from town to town, and they would find these places because they don't have a pastor or a preacher. And many churches in America at one time in our history, didn't have pastors. And so literally, pastors would shepherd multiple churches, yeah. and they would hear a sermon every couple weeks. That's, mm -hmm. not the way that, that's not the way it is anymore, because things have changed, but that's how this would have been. So they would have expected that God maybe would lead somebody to them, which is why she's so open mm -hmm. to hear what Paul says. So Paul shows up, and he assumes the role as rabbi, he assumes the role of, uh, of teacher, and he teaches them the gospel about who Jesus is and what God has done. What I love here is it says that God opened her heart. Mm -hmm. It's just so, and we just all need to realize that as we're trying to tell people about Jesus, as we're trying to uh, invite people to church, that ultimately what has to happen is God has to change somebody's heart. Our words can't do it. You know, our invitations can't move the human heart. Only God can. So she becomes a Christian and she's pretty, I mean, you can tell she's a woman of leadership because she said, look, if you consider me to be a believer, I mean, she, she pushes oh, she back. Did. Yeah, she's got a little gumption here. If you consider me a believer, then come and stay at my house. And it says she persuaded us. You know, this, this woman's no joke. I mean, she is um, something to be dealt with. And, you know, there's some rumors and gossip in church history around her. Some people believe that, you know, maybe she married Paul. She became one of, you know, his ultimate financiers and traveling companions. There's no evidence that they got mm. married. It's just hearsay, but she is a major, major player in the early church and probably, like I said, its biggest financer. So, and what's amazing here, and this is what I want to say to all of our people who are not yet in a small group, you're not utilizing your house, you know, to host a small group, this becomes the church. Her house becomes the church. Just mm -hmm. like when I started Sandals Church, we started in my house. That's where this big mega church started, in my house, in the wood streets, 850 square foot house. 
That's where Sandals Church started. Yep. And that's where one of the most important churches in the history of the world is going to start. It's in her house. Her house was probably a little bigger than 850 square feet because she's very, <laughs> very wealthy. It says that she was a dealer of purple. And so what that means is she dealt exclusively with wealthy people and kings mm-hmm. because purple was this was the symbol of wealth, hmm. you know? so Got it. Okay, so Paul and Silas end up getting locked up in prison, um, and on their way to being in prison, uh, verse 16 through 18, we see that one day they're going down to the place of prayer. We met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. So back in Luke chapter 8, we met this demon-possessed guy with incredible strength. Now there's this demon-possessed girl who can tell the future. Are superpowers a side effect of demon possession? <laughs> they can be. We have to remember that demons are fallen angels, so they have gifteds. They have gifts that we don't have. They can understand things that we don't have. And that's why the Bible is so clear that we should not practice divination. We should not practice fortune telling. We should not turn to these things because oftentimes what you're dealing with is a person, just like we're full of the Holy Spirit, is full of some demon. Here's where it gets a little creepy is in the Greek, it actually says that she was full of Python. So Python is mm. uh, the Greek name for the snake god. Think about that. We, we call a large snake today in English, mm-hmm. Python. And so... Um, diviners or people that could fortune tell were often seen as people who could speak like snakes. And so she, she's a scary chick. I mean, this is she's a frightening person to deal with. And day after day, she's literally speaking against Paul. And she's probably aggravating him, but she is drawing a huge crowd to who he is because she's the local spiritual guru. Mm. And people come to her um, you know, for her abilities and her awareness of the spiritual world. And in the ancient world, this was very, very valuable. She's like the golden goose. So whoever owns her owns the golden goose because rich people want to know the future. Kings want to know the future. Should I go to war? Should I not go to war? And so they ask her before they do this. And it was very, very common to go and pay these people for information. Should I get married to this person? Go ask the snake chick because that's (laughs) normal, right? right? That's the way that they did things. And apparently she has a good record of telling the future accurately because... People are coming to her. Yeah. And and guess what? She is truthful because she knows exactly who Paul and Silas are, she, or, or Paul and Timothy. She says, these guys are servants of the Most High God. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really communicate everything to this pagan city that has no idea who God is. Mm-hmm. It really kind of confuses people, and it makes Paul's sharing of the gospel a little more difficult because he needs to tell them who Jesus is. And so she's you know, shouting and making this commotion. And, and, and apparently, eventually, it aggravates him. And right. he tells her to shut up in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Got it. So after all of this happens and they cast a demon out of her, they end up getting sent into prison because a mob happens. The, her owners get really angry. And it says that while they're in prison around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted him, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. So last time we had somebody get broken out of prison, an angel came and led him away. That's not happening here. But it seems weird to me that Paul stays in prison when it seems like God's doing something to open up the prison and let them out. Right. How do we know when you take an opportunity like that or you stay? Because I would have run. Yeah, I would have yeah. been out of there. Well, the last time, though, when we talked about this, remember, James was killed. Mm-hmm. So he was beheaded. So we know that Herod is serious. Yes. Mm-hmm. This time, this is a bunch of idiotic Greeks who got a little carried away, and they've actually committed a crime against the Apostle Paul because they don't know he's a Roman citizen. And so the mob got out of control, got out of hand, and they did something that they shouldn't have done. They beat him 
with a rod. Um, actually, Paul says that he's beaten with rods three on three separate occasions. This is the only occasion we know of in Acts, but three separate occasions he's beaten with rods, and uh, this is just this is just brutal. Um, and so, literally, you know, Romans would allow you to be bo- beaten forty times because they basically thought if you can't kill a person forty times beating them with a rod, there's something wrong with you. So that was kind of the max, which is why the Jews beat you forty less one because they didn't want to kill you, but they wanted you to remember the moment. Mm-hmm. So. He has this awful, terrible experience, and he's locked unjustly in prison. And so I think a couple things here. I think he realizes that the earthquake is the hand of God. So the earthquake shakes the prison to its foundations. All of the chains, they're in stocks, you know, they all come off. Clearly, this is the hand of God. And Paul senses that God is going to do something powerful. And here's the reason why I think Paul doesn't run, because God called him to this city. He knows he's supposed to be here. He knows this is where he's supposed to be. And so, and that's what I would say is, if God has called you to stay, for some missionaries in the history of the world, that means they need to stay and die. And that has happened. But if God has not called you to stay there and die, which is why you need to be praying and and hearing from the word of God and understanding his nudging, then you need to get out of there. And so Peter escapes. In this instance, the apostle Paul stays. And what happens is truly miraculous because what God wants to do is he doesn't want to free Paul from prison, he wants to free the jailer from sin. And that's what God's going to do. And so it's pretty powerful and amazing, you know, what happens. And so that's what I would say is, you know, before you run from the situation, is God going to use this situation for me to lead somebody to Christ? And if that's the truth, then stay. Stay, because that that's the most important thing is that somebody comes to know Jesus. So the jailer does run in, verses 29 through 34, says he, he calls for the lights, ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas because nobody left. And Paul said, don't kill yourself. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved along with everyone in your household. So believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved um, is a pretty simple message. Paul doesn't even say repent, be baptized, or anything like that here in this moment. Is, is all that stuff implied or... Yeah, well, this is this is an immediate event. So let's, let's back up a little bit. So what does it say the jailer was doing? It says he was asleep. Mm-hmm. He blew it. You're not supposed to do that, right? Okay. I mean, guards need to stay awake, preferably, right. while watching prisoners. So he's in trouble. Um, and, the, and the guards, ha- or excuse me, the prisoners have escaped on his watch. So he runs in. He's going to kill himself. He knows that he's done wrong. Paul says, stop. So this guy, this guy, I think, has adopted a posture of physical repentance. He knows he's wrong. He's ready to listen. And he says, when he says, what must I do to be saved? The assumption there is, if you say, what must I do to be saved? You're you're agreeing that you're lost. Mm-hmm. So he has an understanding there. So mm-hmm. it says, Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. But look at verse 32. It says, then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. So he elaborates later on that evening with okay. the entire family of what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, which would include repentance, repentance of sin. It w- would include placing your faith and trust in the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. And it would include being baptized as a physical symbol of the repentance of your sin. So I'm going to be washed. And we see here that the guy does everything. Mm-hmm. He does everything. So he and his whole household believe, repent of their sins, and are baptized. And it, and it looks like it's that night. I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. And they're probably baptized in the well that's inside the prison courtyard. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Hmm. So, and, and the guy shows he's sorry because he washes their wounds. He adopts yeah. the posture, not of the warden, but as of a servant. So, That is um, 
Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. So the next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. And the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace, which is really interesting. Go in peace versus go out in the middle of an earthquake. Um, so why are Paul and Silas being pardoned so quickly? Paul hasn't even made the, the defense yet that he's a Roman citizen. Mm-hmm. Like, did they just change their minds? What happened? Well, here? I think a couple things happened. They got bigger fish to fry. There's a major earthquake. Mm. So they've got to deal with local things. So I think that's part of it, right? These guys are no longer the priority, but taking care of the town is because if there was an earthquake that destroyed the prison, then Price many, many other problems. buildings. And so they're just like, okay, let these guys go. Um, so that that's, I think, the major reason. And another reason could be that they know they blew it. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, we got a little carried away yesterday when we beat those guys to a pulp. Uh, we feel bad, just get out of town. But Paul says, no, 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 you beat me without a public trial. We are Roman citizens. And Paul's like, you're going to apologize to my face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why does <laughs> yeah. he do that? Because according to Roman law, so here's the here's the thing. So like if you're an American citizen, it doesn't help you all that much wherever you go. Like for example, if, you know, when you and I were in India, if we get in trouble there, we're on our own. Mm-hmm. But Roman, Roman law didn't work that way. It was way better to be a Roman citizen than it would be to be an American citizen. Because what Rome said is, no matter where you are in the empire, you are under our rule and our authority, and no one can lay a hand on you except us. Mm-hmm. So no matter where you were, you could appeal to Rome. So think about if we were in India, and you know you stole something because you're a sinner, Stephanie, yeah, well, and we got busted and they threw us in a jail, Stephanie could say, I'm an American citizen. And so if we lived in Roman times, they'd have to send us back to D.C., pay, you know, pay for us to get back there, and then we would stand trial you know, in Washington, D.C. So it's pretty, pretty incredible thing. And Rome took this very seriously because here's what could happen. This city could lose its status. Mm. Rome, if they find out, Rome could just say, you're no longer a Roman city. And they lose all their tax base, their revenue, their their protection, everything. And you wanted to be a Roman city in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, people want to be American citizens today. It was even more so because right. the gap between Roman and non-Roman was was immense. I mean, it was it was greater than slave and free. It was a huge, huge gap. And so to be a Roman citizen was something. What's interesting here is we find out that uh, Silas is Roman. He says, we are. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty incredible. Paul has intentionally brought him along on this journey. And it is interesting to note that Timothy and Luke were not beaten. Oh, so you notice there's the four of them, but only Paul and Silas were dragged and beat. And, and the reason why I think it is is because I think there was some anti-Semitism here. So Paul and Silas would have looked like Jews. What would Luke and uh, Timothy look like? Greeks. Yeah. So when the when the, when the mob went nuts, they don't they don't grab the Greek people because they look like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do grab the people who dress like Jews, and so they beat up Saul and Silas, thinking that they're Jews. And there's you know there's not a local synagogue there. And, and notice what they said way back when they when they went after him. They said these Jews yep. have brought this to us, mm-hmm. and so they already don't like Jews in this particular town, which is, you know, it's sad part of human history where, you know, there's racism in every culture. So uh, it's pretty incredible what happens here, but they demand, no, 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 you got to come and apologize to us. I mean, Paul's, Paul's a pretty uh, yeah, so gutsy bold. guy. Yeah. He's yeah. getting his Lydia on right here, actually, is what <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of. He has been inspired by her, her uh, moves there. So cool. Well, at the end of this too, it says that then, then they brought them out and begged them to leave the, the city. So is it, do you think Paul was like a little too intense here and like asking them to apologize? Because I thought the whole point was that he wanted to stay in the city, but now they're begging them. Yeah, to so I, I, I think they don't, like I said, they don't want to lose, they, they know they blew it. They don't want to lose power. They don't want to lose authority. They could literally lose their titles. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could have their, their titles stripped from them, you know, so you were mayor, now you're 
now you're the janitor of the city of Flip-By. I mean, literally, they, they could lose everything. But they also want to appease the crowd. So they're really kind of between a rock and a hard place. They know that Paul's right legally, but the people are crazy. Yeah. And they're probably all irritated because there was an earthquake, and they could say, you brought this upon us with your weird religion, Yeah. Mm. which God probably did bring the earthquake to free them. So they are a little truthful there. So they just want him out in a way. And so they, he does it. It says, they came and apologized to them, escorting him out. They urged them to leave the town. And after leaving jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and departed. So they did go to the church first and kind of encouraged them before they left. And again, this is one of the major, major churches in the book of Acts and in early church history. And they have an incredible, incredible effect in the history of the world. And um, we should be grateful for the church of Philippi. Awesome. And Philippians is one of my favorite books. It is, uh, yeah, Philippians chapter two is probably one of my most inspiring places to go to in the Bible. Well, hey, this is really awesome. I loved um, going through this kind of story and uh, looking at it a little bit uh, more detailed. And uh, if you guys have questions on any of that stuff, uh, we would love to get your questions here on the show. Just go over to our Facebook page, look up The Debrief Podcast on Facebook, send us a message, or uh, just leave a comment, and uh, we'll do what we can to get your questions here on the show. Or if you've got a question, just just a gen- regular tough question from the Bible, you want a real answer from Pastor Matt, send that in as well. You can send that on Facebook, or head over to sandalsearch.com slash The Debrief, and uh, click the big red button that says Ask a Question. And uh, another little reminder, Reminder here, we appreciate your reviews either on the iTunes store or on our Facebook page. And if you want to get a heads up or a head start on the uh, contest we'll be announcing next week on the show, uh, make sure you got one of those debrief t-shirts so that you can be ready for that when it comes out next weekend. I think you're going to like what we have to entice you with. Now, before we leave here, Stephanie, you got some inspiration for us to uh, pack out the show with? I sure do. And before I get into that, I also want to say that We would love your help finding some really great inspirational quotes to get here in front of Pastor Matt. So when you're following us on Facebook, feel free to drop some really awesome inspirational quotes that you find all over the internet. I would love to have some help on that one because it's fun to do this together. So today's inspirational quote says, it's important to make someone happy and it's important to start with yourself. Wow. That's like a new level of dumb. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. Making yourself happy often is how you make yourself miserable. So you got to be very careful, you know, I mean, I mean, there's good happiness, right? Following Jesus, doing what is right, good and true. And then there's selfish happiness, which is... Cinnabon nonstop all day, every day. Yeah. Which is why the world is miserable. So you will be happier by doing the right thing and loving God than you will by pursuing simple happiness. But Hmm. that was good. Yeah. Yeah. Tweet that. Well, there you have it. All right. We'll see you guys next week.